My son, years ago, had a job fair in high school. And many of the representatives from around the area that had jobs uh, were asked to come and share their thoughts about, you know, a job, a possible career. So it was career day at this particular high school, Daphne High School in Daphne, Alabama. And they, the object was to motivate young people, motivate the, the seniors and juniors to be thinking about what they're going to do once they graduated from high school, where they're going to go to college, if they were to go to college. So these professionals were supposedly uh, to, to be motivating and uh, to help. My son liked to, uh, you know, take the other side of things when we'd have discussions. And I thought, you know, Stephen, you like to art. Well, I shouldn't say this, but anyway, he liked to discuss, you know, and and it it wasn't an argument. It was just a different viewpoint. And I thought, you know, what you need to do because you have you ask a lot of questions and you're really discerning. You ought to be a lawyer, you know. So when this job fair comes up, go to the lawyer section, you know, and talk to the lawyer. And uh, so anyway, he did that. He went to the lawyer, and the lawyer said, "This is the worst job. You don't want to. <laughs> you don't want this job. And I don't know why I'm here. You know, blah blah blah." But I thought, "Wow." <laughs> and many of the people that came, they didn't really like their jobs very well, and there they were trying to encourage the students. And it made you think that. Well, when they graduated, they'd probably go out and, and uh, you know, talk to somebody else that was least excited about what they were doing. But I thought that was rather eye-opening. And it was eye-opening in terms of getting into law as well. And uh, fortunately, Stephen did not go into law. He went into something else, into uh, information systems, and uh, he has been doing quite well. He likes dealing with people. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time. I'm really, you know, very positive and happy what my son has done. But he just had a knack of selling. And uh, who could sell? He could sell ice cream or, or ice cubes to Eskimos. You know, he, he has, that, has that gift. I don't know how he does it. But anyway, um, he, uh, he would cold call during the summertime one, one summer. And um, anyway, he was selling... Um, what, not Eureka? Was it Eureka? Yeah, Eureka vacuum cleaner. Not Eureka, but uh, some sort of vacuum cleaner. And uh, Kirby, Kirby vacuum cleaners are like $1,900. Cold calling, knock on the door. Hello, can I demonstrate this vacuum cleaner? And people would let them in. You know, the wife, the, the, the mother would be home. She would let them in, and he would demonstrate, and somehow she would buy it. I don't know how in the world you can do that. But anyway, he was successful in doing things like that. So he's doing well. And quite interesting to hear him discuss the business that he's in and how he has to educate the businesses on uh, search engine marketing. What makes a good teacher? What makes a good teacher? Because when we think about why we're here, we understand that God is doing something in all of our lives. God is encouraging us and helping us, essentially, to become teachers. What makes a good teacher? And those who are involved in work and have gone to school, you know, you have your idea, perhaps, of good teachers that you had that motivated you when you were in school. 
one that uh, perhaps encouraged you or set a good example or was approachable. There are all kinds of principles and instruction how to teach. You can go on YouTube. You know you can go on YouTube and learn just about anything, how to fix a car, how to repair an engine, you know, um, how to find a, a wife. I mean, you wouldn't want to do that, but... But anyway, you, you have, there are all things on the, uh, YouTube that will teach you a lot of things. And, uh, there are, you can type in qualities of a good teacher and you'll help find a, you know, a hundred different points or principles. Well, the eternal God declares the end from the beginning. And we see in Revelation 20 and verse 6 in advance, that we will be kings and priests. Notice this in Revelation 20. Again, very inspiring and encouraging scripture. Very inspiring. And uh, it says here in Romans, excuse me, Revelation 20 in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we know we're going to be kings and priests. And here it emphasizes the part that we're going to be priests of God and rule and reign with him a thousand years. So being king, being a king also is a part of it. So we, we realize the importance of why we are in God's church, that we're learning we're growing and part of the work is to make disciples and disciples are students. Students have to be taught. And you realize, as I've tell, I've tell people all the time, you know, when we're planning these tomorrow's world presentations, Mr. Weston can't go to every place. Mr. Dr. Winnale and Mr. Rod McNair and others who are sent out, they can't be everywhere. And so when, when they do come, they're there to encourage people, but what happens after they leave? That's where you come in. You are uh, the excellent and most outstanding lights in the church in the sense of follow through. And people come in and, and uh, they're brand new and they see you. You're the piece of resistance. You know, the, 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 the ministry, we, we do our part, but brethren, you have a big part in the work of God in encouraging other people and setting that example and being approachable. And by your example, you do many things you don't really realize that causes people to stick to be a part of the body of Christ. So we see in advance that we're going to be teachers and we are in preparation. It takes preparation to and training to teach. Uh, a priest is someone who teaches in Leviticus, the 10th chapter, Leviticus 10. No, and I, I, I'm not telling you anything new. You, you probably have heard this many, many times over the years. You've been in the church. And the thought that, that I've heard in response to this topic is, who, me? How can I teach anything? What, what do I have to offer where I can make something uh, plain or, or, or interesting or, or encourage somebody. Who am I to be a king? I've had widows tell me this. And uh, other people in the church that feel very deficient or inferior. 
Notice in Leviticus 10, verse 11, speaking about the uh, priest, the Lord spoke to Aaron, verse 8, in chapter 10, verse 8, Leviticus 10, verse 8, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons, with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting. And this relates, of course, to the ministry. You know, we don't imbibe in alcohol and, and uh, strong drink and, uh, you know, before coming in on God's Sabbath or before speaking. You know, that's not something very, that, that would be very unwise and very inappropriate to do. Lest you die, and if you have be a, a, a statue, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. So when they come before God, they were to behave a certain way, a very, very holy uh, conduct they were to conduct themselves, that you may distinguish, verse 10, between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. So on the Sabbath, on the times that are holy times, we need to be circumspect. And you are, you want to be. And there may be someone that may have taken a uh, a swig, you know, of some beverage before they come to church. And they come up to you and they say, hi, hi how are you doing? And they, you nearly fall over. That's happened. And we, we understand that there are people that are, you know, brand new. And they, they don't know, understand this principle. When we come before God, if we're going to understand what is holy and what is unholy, we need to be sober. Sober-minded, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So, brethren, we are in training, and God wants us to be able to determine and be able to just have the mind to distinguish between what is clean and unclean, and what is holy and what is unholy. And the longer you're in the church, you begin to catch on. You begin to understand. You have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of understanding and a lot of wisdom. Now, Ezra, we read, Mr. Weston read about Ezra. Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of God. What did he do? How did he prepare himself? Well, how do you prepare yourself? I'm sure you spend time opening the Bible and reading and drinking in God's Word. And this word seek in some commentaries uh, indicate that it means to study, to study the law of God. And many think, oh, yeah, study. Some look at studying the law of God as being boring. It's anything but boring. It can be very insightful and intriguing. As you get into it, you begin to ask questions, you know. Um, how do you love your wife? You know, we're supposed to love one another, especially love our wives, and husbands love your husband. Well, I tell you, when when you talk about with your wife, well, dear, how am I supposed to love you? That's an exciting topic. The wives want to hear, and they want to let you know how they can be loved, you know. One man bought his wife a... Uh, for a present, you know, um, he said, dear, I love you. And here I bought you this present. It's out in the in the garage. And she went out in the garage, hopeful. And lo and behold, he bought a riding lawnmower. <laughs> now, it, it was uh, it, it, the the action was uh, pure there, but the gift was anything but 
personal. You know, it's more for him than it was for her, obviously. So, I mean, when you say to your wife, you know, how can I love you? That's exciting. And, uh, you know, we, we need to think in terms of, of being excited about God's law and ask the right questions. And so Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. So he's praying and he's asking God to help him to do it, to give him the insight into what the law means and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And in order to do that, you've got to be clear. You've got to be plain. You've got to have, you know, it nailed down in your mind how to get the point across. And so they did. In Nehemiah 8, you read, as we did before, Mr. Weston read that, that they taught the people and they helped them to understand the law. They, they read distinctly. They, they spoke up and they projected their voice and they were able to hear them. Without the PA system, can you imagine? I mean, all those people gathered together. I often wonder about that. You know, they, they must have used the diaphragm and uh, were great spokesmen back in the day, you know, <laughs> and uh, projected their voice, and they helped the people understand and gave sense and, and helped them to understand the reading. Can you make sense of God's law? What's it mean not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Is that all that means is, well, you, you shouldn't curse? Many people think that, that all that means is, well, you should not curse with God's name. But is that what it means? We're to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, how we treat one another. What's that mean? See, I'm asking a question. You're probably saying, well, what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, stay tuned. You know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of it, but... You can make sense of the law, but you have to prepare yourself. And you have understanding, you have wisdom, and you can pray for even more. And God will help you. God will help you with your children. God will help you with your your family and grandkids. And make it plain and, and give sense. How would you make people understand God's law? What would, what, how, what facet or what direction would you take them? How would you explain what you know to someone about the Sabbath, for instance. New people ask all kinds of questions. And are you ready? Are you prepared? Even now, you're in preparation to be able to de- uh, disseminate some aspects, some facet of it. They may say, or, or do you keep a Saturday Sabbath? Or, are you Seventh-day Adventist? And, of course, your answer may be, well, no. But, yes, I do keep the Sabbath. I follow the example of Jesus Christ and the New Testament church and, of course, all the apostles. And you stop because you have wisdom. You give too much and they may turn them off. You could say, well, you need to come out of paganism and worshiping on Sunday, you know, but you don't want to go there, right? You, you have, you've been around and you've been, uh, you, you have discretion. And you, you, you want to give sense. You want to answer the question at hand and not go too far and wait for the next question that they might ask. Probably what they'll say is, well, thank you. I, I appreciate the answer. And, and then they'll think about it. If God is calling them, they'll, have, they'll come up with another question. And they normally do sometimes. But new people will ask questions and you've got to be ready. And we read where it says that 
give a, you have to be ready to give an answer. But you know, you read that whole scripture and says you've got to be ready to give an answer according to the hope that lies within you. Now, that is gets to be quite uh, exciting because you have this great hope. You've just heard a sermonette about the New Jerusalem and uh, the qualities and characteristics of, of gold and the character of God. And this is exciting. You know you're going to be born in the very family of God and you'll be able to share this, you see, with other people. That you believe in not pl- uh, plucking on a harp, floating on a cloud forever and, and doing nothing. No, God has something big for you and big for our children as well. And so the hope that lies within you, oh wow, that's a, that's like a big springboard. You can talk all day long and you do about the coming hope of when Christ returns. And, uh, you know, that hope is riveting. Jesus Christ is coming back. It's real. He is literally coming back and to stop this chaos and mess that we see in this world today. And you believe that. You're convicted and you show that conviction and that passion. You want Christ to come back. And you yearn for the kingdom. So you have this. It just comes out of you. And you see, you start off in explaining from that perspective and people stand up and listen. Believe me. So we're being prepared. Ezra prepared himself. He was excited. All the other priests and Levites around him, uh, they were all pumped up and excited. And the reason why you know this is because the response they got. People listened and they began to, to mourn and cry. And finally they had to say, no, no, wait a minute. This is a holy day. This is a feast of trumpets. You need to rejoice. And that came across as well. And they began to rejoice as they kept and obeyed God's commandments, uh, specifically the Feast of Tabernacles, and of course, the, red, the remainder of uh, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, stop for a moment and think about the challenges we will face before Christ returns, or at the time that Christ returns, for sure. Satan's legacy of deception will have done its well, it will hit the mark and the people will really be all discombobulated. They will be confused. Some will be hiding in caves. There will be this legacy of Satan's world and that people will have to overcome. The educational system today is founded on pagan ideas and philosophies of Plato. The basis is, you know, part of which is evolution, human reason, the scientific method, which is a circular reason, a reason trying to figure out truth, and they never can come to an actual fact, though they claim they will have a fact until proven wrong, because they're continually searching for fact by t- trial and error and testing and the scientific method. It's something that has accomplished a lot in terms of developing certain things, but in the end, it's all a, God is not in it. And they, they deny the existence of God. They deny the existence of the spiritual realm. And so it's very popular because they don't have to obey God. They deny God. Human reason sounds good. It sounds logical. But not all logic is truth. Proverbs 12, 14, 12. Proverbs 14, 12. You can just write this down. It's a memory scripture. 
human reason sounds good, but seems right. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is a way of death. So we have to teach our children that not all logic, though it's logical sounding, not all logic is truth. It may seem logical, you know, where you hear these songs where you got to love everybody. Love will solve everything. Well, not the way the world loves, apart from God. There may be an emotion people have. People sing, oh, we can all be one, be one together and love everybody. Well, you know, that is not working because they don't have the love that does work, and that's the love of God. But it sounds logical, it sounds sweet and and, uh, enticing, but it doesn't work. People have tried it, and human love has its limits. It's selfish. Today, there are those who want to do away with all laws. Scientists, people recognize the new God of this world, are scientists, and their gospel is the theory of evolution. No absolutes, no authority, no restraints. The universities and colleges of this world um, promote all these new concepts and ideas, uh, woke ideas and uh, no gender and uh, etc., denying the very existence of common sense and the wise, all-powerful, supreme God who created all things and sustains the universe. So modern education demeans God's word. They will not search it out. They will not do what you're doing, brethren. Instead, they live and follow Satan's way. So this is the legacy. Christ will come back. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. People in the world will be running scared and hiding in caves, wondering what's going to happen next. The title of this is Preparing to Teach. There will be a lot of mentally... And emotionally mixed up people. How will you, how will it be possible to teach them, to reach them? How will you do it? We know that God will make us kings and priests. The function of the key, of, of a priest is to educate, to instruct, to encourage, to motivate, to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. And are you prepared? And where in the world would you begin? As I mentioned, many of us feel incompetent or completely overwhelmed by the thought of teaching anybody anything. Have you ever been in a situation where someone's asked you a question in the church or maybe a neighbor or somebody and you, and you, and you didn't really know how to answer that question? And you just thought for a moment and you, then you began to pray quietly, silently, you know. And then suddenly you said something or you didn't say anything. Either way, but you said something perhaps, and they were impressed. They thought, wow, that, that was really profound. Or you didn't say anything, and they, they thought, well, you know, uh, I, I, I understand what you mean. You know, the silence spoke volumes, perhaps. You see, God is using you even now and helping you to see that you have some things that you are able to share with others. Not where you're, you know, exalting oneself, but, you know, God has given you wisdom. God has given the mothers of the church wisdom to deal with their children. God has given parents eyes behind their head, you know, that you have this discernment where you can tell whether your child is 
fibbing or stretching the story or exaggerating or outright lying. God has helped you to see certain things and to help your children to teach them. So we know that godly knowledge and wisdom and understanding come from God. And when there are these Kodak moments, when you come up with an answer and it's wisdom, it's really uh, succinct and it's um, savory, and you think, well, where did that come from? And you you said it, you know, you came from your, you, it came to your mind, God put it there, and you expressed that, and you helped somebody else. God used you. And I can show you, if we have time, we're, we're we, we, we are encouraged to do that. But here in um, Exodus, the 31st chapter, notice this. Some feel held back from time to time, and they, they don't know, well, how can God use me? Me teach? Me rule? How's that possible? Well, notice this in Exodus 31. This is a miracle that God can perform. So you don't, you may think you don't know how you can do certain things. You may lack the training. Uh, you may not have gone to, you know, an institution of, of uh, higher learning, which really uh, was not higher learning. It, it was a lot of uh, confusing ideas and concepts. And if, and even today, it's, it's even worse to go to a university uh, than it was years ago. But here we read in uh, Exodus 31 how God does things. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all manner of workmanship. Now, I don't know about you, but we all have a, a, pinquit, a penchant for doing certain things, and maybe... You like to work with wood. Maybe you like to do landscaping and whatnot. Mr. Gary Stein over in Dallas, he's a consummate landscaper. I'm, I'm always impressed when I visit with him and see what he's come up with. And there are others that deal with flowers. My wife likes to uh, plant flowers in the back deck. And the way she designs it is just remarkable. And she probably doesn't think that she does all that great, but I think it's just like the Garden of Eden. So it's just amazing what people can do and what you may be doing as well. Well, here was a situation where they were developing articles and woodworking and dealing with gold and silver and precious stones and whatnot. How would you do that? How would you come up with a thought or idea how to work with those things? Well, see, the Spirit of God, he filled them with spirit with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and, and all manner of workmanship. Oh, would that be fun to work with all those different things and to make it come out and look gorgeous, beautiful. I mean, just beyond words to describe. To design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting. You know, I don't know if it was the hope... Hope Diamond or some very expensive, you know, one of those big diamonds, one of the uh, jewel cutters would carry it around in his pocket. And I, I don't remember the exact stone it was, but he had to study that stone. He had to see, uh, you know, the, the different facets and cleavages in that stone. Somehow he had to recognize that. And then when he hit the hammer and the chisel in the right spot, it would not... You know, uh, 
dissolve into a pile of dust. It had to be just right. And uh, he was able to do that. And it's quite a story. But here, Bezalel, he had this special wisdom. He knew exactly what to do. Cutting of jewels, of setting, and carving wood, and work in melman or workmanship. Indeed, I indeed, I have appointed him with him, Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach. Uh, these are not good uh, names that you want to name your children, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Aholiab, uh, uh, the son of Ahizamach and the tribe of Dan. I'll put wisdom in the hearts of all who gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. So this is amazing. So you, you, you are born into the family of God. You may not have what you think you need. Presto changeo, God gives you the wisdom. And already, if God gave Bezalel wisdom how to work with physical things, how much more will God give us His Holy Spirit in the spiritual areas of our life? And even now, that wisdom is growing. God has given you a lot of wisdom. Here, notice this in Exodus, the 35th chapter, Exodus 35. You have, you have, you have more wisdom and understanding about God's way of life than you give yourself credit for sometimes. And you may not think, you may be inferior and think you don't have this, but you do in many respects, and it's amazing. It's a, it's, it's like a variety of, of things that you do that teach that encourage and that motivate. I would, as a teenager, I would see my dad go and pray. And I would see him pray on his knees with a Bible open. And when there was a crisis in the family, he would say, we need to fast about this. And not on the Day of Atonement, but I mean, it would be a separate, different fast. So we would, as a family, would fast. It would be very serious. Uh, the third tithe of the year, we fasted in hopes of having a way to go to the feast. We didn't have a car. We were using a borrowed car, an old Rambler, uh, that a neighbor was letting us use. And when it would rain, the horn would go off. It would automatically, in the middle of the night. And it, I hated to ride in that car. It was embarrassing, you know. But anyway, that's what we had to get around. We were thankful, really, to, to have it. To be lo- and then the, the neighbor that roomed with us, he would walk to, to Ambassador College and, and do his job. He, he walked so we could have a car. What a, what a great sacrifice that was. Another example. But we prayed and we held hands and each one of us, my younger brother and my mom and dad and myself, we all prayed for a car. And when we, dad then said after we got up, we were going to go to Sabbath services and that old rambler. And then uh, we made it there and fortunately made it home. And then Dad said, well, Sunday we're going to go to the Ford agency and, and see about getting a car. And I said, Dad, we, we, there's no, he didn't have a job. He, conditions in the, in the Southern California in the terms of the housing, it was going down and um, he didn't have a job. He was laid off. And he's going to go buy a new car with no money to go to the feast. So we went on Sunday to the Ford Motor Agency, and there was this beautiful showroom car, four-door, Ford Galaxy, on the showroom floor. The salesman came out, and we talked. That is, my dad did. And after a while, the salesman said, I think I can get cut you a deal on this car. 
and I'll, I'll sell it to you for $100 over a dealer cost. And he gave his word. And then the dealer, the owner came out and he said, are you crazy? We're here to make money, not give cars away. <laughs> he was upset with his salesman. And he said, well, I'm going to stick by the word of my salesman, though I need to fire him. But I'm going to stick by that and I'll let you have that car for $100 over dealer cost. And the bank said, you don't have to make any payments, no down payment, no payments till February. And so we went to the Feast of Tabernacles in a brand new car without down payment, no money. And that car smelled good. (laughs) You see, that taught me something. That was instructive. That was so inspiring. And I've never forgotten it. It brings a lump to my throat many times when I think about that particular feast and what God did at the end of our third tithe year. I may have mentioned that to you before, but it comes to my mind. But you see, I saw my dad pray. I saw him open the Bible. I have a Bible of my mom at home. It was given to her when we transferred to Texas in 2007. It was a feast gift, a King James, New King James Version, large print. And uh, so after a while, you know, when I was transferred to um, Atlanta, my mom by that time had passed away. I inherited her Bible. So I was thinking, oh, this is large print, big print. So I was using it. And uh, one day as I was using it, I noticed that in a particular area in the Psalms where I would have been reading, every line of this one chapter was underlined. I thought, isn't that interesting? My mom underlined every verse, you know, in that particular chapter of Psalms. Well, I turned over in the next page, same thing in that verse and chapter. And I thought, wow. And I went to Psalms 1-1. Sure enough, blessed and happy is the man. It's all underlined. Then I went, I thought, "You, you really? And then she would put a date when she had underlined or read that particular verse And I went back to Genesis, every chapter in Genesis underlined. Then I went to Revelation, every chapter underlined. It's amazing. My mom didn't have to say too much, but she had a lot of wisdom. And it was instructive. And it was very helpful to me. And what an example. I'm not going to let that Bible get away from me. It's inspiring, though it's falling apart, but it it illustrates what my parents were doing and what I know many of you are doing. You are preparing to teach. You are studying God's Word. Many of us feel incompetent or completely overwhelmed by the thought, but God is going to take care of that, and He's encouraging us and helping us to see that He's going to give us what we lack and is already building within us that golden character. We read in Hebrews, the eighth chapter, where it talks about the new covenant. Hebrews, the eighth chapter. Let's turn there right quickly. Hebrews 8 and verse 10. It says, Hebrews 8 and verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, God is writing his laws in our hearts, even as we speak. 
you know, and forwards and backwards, about the Sabbath. You know when it is, you know what to do, and you do it. It is a part of you. You don't think, well, should I keep the Sabbath this week? No, it's it's a part of you. You wouldn't dare not keep the Sabbath. Do you uh, rest on the Sabbath? You sure do. Do you endeavor to keep it holy? Yes. You are growing and observing and keeping the Sabbath. What do you do when there's a crisis? We had a widow lady in um, uh, Ocean Springs congregation. She would say, well, it's time to hit your kneecaps. That was her way of saying it's time to pray, to kneel down and start praying. And when we first came into the church, you know, you'd talk to various ones, and they would talk about calluses they would have on their knee, knees from, from praying, from kneeling. It was kind of like they were, I don't know, in competition, who had the largest, you know, callus on their knees. Not really, but it was kind of interesting. I heard these things. And then this widow lady was saying, time to hit your kneecaps. We know that was just a comment that she made, but in a way it was encouragement. And the brethren knew it and they all smiled and they said, you know, it's time that we need to pray about this problem or this this uh, sickness that's going around. And, and anyway, it was instructive and helpful, encouraging, and a reminder. And many of our widow ladies are, and older brethren make comments that just ring true like a bell, bing, you know, like a loud bell, like the like some gigantic gong and it just you know oh yeah or a light bulb comes on well oh, that was that was a pithy very wise statement that, that that individual made and it just rivets you it just gets you going so brethren you have been baptized you have God's spirit God's spirit is leading you and God's spirit is writing his laws in your heart as you surrender to him as you're as you're crying out to him as you're praying to him you know king david panted after God's way of life. And that's another question. Why did he love God so much? Why did he love the law of God so much? I wondered about that for some time. And then, you know, as you mature and you get thinking more spiritually minded, you know, you, you God begins to help you to see things. One day I was driving down the freeway and... Uh, this uh, highway patrol came right behind me and turned on the blue light. Scared me half to death. Well, I decided, well, I better pull over. I guess I was doing something wrong. I looked at my speedometer, and it was where it should have been, and maybe a little bit over the mark, but anyway. <laughs> but I moved, pulled over, and, and the police officer, the highway patrol, zoomed by. And I sighed a big sigh of relief. Oh, wow. That was close. That's happened several times. And you know what the thought I had in my mind? I said, oh, that law, the speed, the speed limit law, is a good law. And because, I, because I'm staying close to that law and not going over, uh, what a blessing. Oh, how I love that law. You know, <laughs> I don't like the penalty. See, I, I like the law. So you see, King David really appreciated all the benefits and blessings from obeying God's laws. And he just yearned and talked about that. So here are some principles of a good teacher. And these are just a few. I just have four four of them. And there are some that are mixed in with these. But nonetheless, 
These are four general principles. Number one, a good teacher must know the subject. And the source of all knowledge is in the Bible. The basics of all knowledge is in God's word. I heard a senior pastor tell me, the only knowledge that's really worth learning and knowing about in terms of, of how to live and, and how to be a success, etc., the, the, uh, the guidance that we need growing up and later on in our lives is the Word of God. All other knowledge, you know, it's, it's secondary compared to the Word of God. And by the Spirit and power of God, the doors open for us to understand godly knowledge and godly wisdom. God has revealed these things to us through his Holy Spirit, whereas the world doesn't know. You can go to your family member that's not in the church, and you can talk to them about how wonderful the feasts are and how the Sabbath, and you can prove it in the Bible, and it just goes right over their head, or in one ear, and it goes out the other, and they say, well, that's your opinion, you know. I remember backing my brother older brother into a corner, which I don't recommend. It just creates ill feelings, you know. But I I showed him the scriptures. And he finally said to me, he says, I know what you're saying is the truth, but I just don't believe it. Well, how can you win an argument that way? I mean, he just, he doesn't really uh, believe it. I mean, he doesn't, it can, you can hit him over the head with it. It wouldn't do any good, but I wished his eyes were open. One day they will be. And I look forward to that. That's the hope. But if you lack certain knowledge and certain wisdom, what we have to do is we are encouraged by Jesus Christ to ask, to seek first. Seek, study, and then ask, and then knock. That's in Luke 11th chapter. You know, when you read Luke the 11th chapter, and the disciples are asking Christ to teach them how to pray. So this is a real classic example of how to pray. Seek, ask, and knock. And what's the end result? If you know how to good give, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit? That's how free God is willing to give us His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So that's the first point. We've, we must know the subject, and that means you have to go after it, you have to study it, read it, and, and at, at the LE level and LU before then. Dr. Winnale had the students, and I took the Old Testament survey class again. I took it in Ambassador College. I decided to take some classes in LU as well. And uh, I thought, wow, I must have been asleep when I was in Ambassador College. Because when I started taking the LU classes, it just was riveting. It just was more, had a greater impact for me. And Dr. Winnell said, what you need to do is you need to summarize every chapter from Genesis all the way to Malachi, Old Old Testament survey. So that was part of our assignment. So we did that. Every chapter. Try it. See what happens. And you can use uh, Haley's Bible handbook, Unger's Bible handbook, um, Holman's Bible handbook. You can use all the the extra helps that you want. But each chapter, if you summarize each chapter, you'll go through all of them 
and it will have an impact. It will have a big impact in giving you an overview of the Old Testament. And uh, needless to say, take the classes in LE. Those are very similar, if not the classes that we took at Ambassador College, and they're outstanding. They get you into the meat of God's way of life, and oh, the Word of God just comes off the page, and it feeds you, it corrects you. I'm going through the uh, Old Testament like that, and I'm going through the uh, the uh, minor prophets, and I'm going, oh, oh, ouch, ooh, ah, you know, it's corrective. It'll correct you. But it's a kind of a good kind of correction because you're wanting to grow. And God's Word is encouraging. It's inspiring. So uh, know the subject. Really go after it. If you need something, if you lack wisdom in some area of child-rearing, ask God about it and go into the Bible and see what God says. See how God deals with our children, with us, you know. Now, Point number two, we must become skillful with God's word of righteousness. Well, how do you do that? Well, notice Hebrews, the fifth chapter, Hebrews 5, Hebrews, the fifth chapter. You see, Hebrews, uh, it was in the Bible this morning. What happened to it? Here it is. Hebrews 5 um, and verse 12. For though by this time... You ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, the, the context of Hebrews is that the audience that the Apostle Paul was writing to here had let down. Uh, They were not assembling themselves together on the Sabbath. They were losing and letting slip the hope of the coming kingdom of God and their part. Uh, they were losing that, that, that vision. And so this whole book of Hebrews is, is trying to stir them up and get them excited again. You know, later on it says you were once enlightened. You once were illuminated. And, and look how you behave when you first came into the church. The Apostle Paul is uh, showing them. And here their immaturity was obvious. Uh, they should, by that time, had been teachers. Now, that's interesting because that is exactly what God is doing for us in the church. He, he wants us to become teachers. We're in preparation. This is like a classroom every Sabbath and on the holy days and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Intensive, intensive classroom study here and encouragement. And we need to put these things into practice Verse 12, or 13, for everyone who partakes of only milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, when you look at milk, milk is really easy to digest. It's, it's uh, delicious. Uh, milkshakes, you know, anything that has milk in it, chocolate milk, it's rather delightful. And so there's this uh, delicious flavor, this beginning knowledge that God gives us, the excitement of it all. But then, the meat of God's Word. What's the meat of God's Word? It's, it's the meat that helps us to become more skilled in righteousness. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
the holy from the unholy, the clean from the unclean. And so we have to be skillful, and we have to exercise the word of God. It may be lawful to eat out on the Sabbath, but what would be unlawful? See, we we, we got to be careful because in one area, we people were going out and eating on the Sabbath, and uh, their conversation went downhill. It went into the in, into into the uh, sewer drain. They, they started talking about you know topics that were argumentative, and they got into a fight. And they were discuss, not discussing anything. They weren't up, up up building up. They were tearing down. And finally, I said, you know, it is lawful to go out and fellowship, to extend the fellowship. Jesus Christ is there in a, in a nice, quiet environment where you can actually hear each other. And uh, But to go out and then fight, that is not a part of the Sabbath. And so I, I said, you could be breaking the Sabbath if you're out arguing. I said, don't do that. Don't go out if you're going to argue and fight, if that's your approach. And they all agreed that that was wrong. And so the next time they went out, they started talking about the future, about God's kingdom about their part and about new people coming into the church that had started coming. And they wanted to encourage them. Oh, what a difference that made. You see, there's a difference. But you have to think. You have to plan. You have to think, well, what topics can we talk about? And you have to become skilled, you see, and think about positive things that would be upbuilding and encouraging and edifying. So um, very important. You know, when I talked about husbands, love your wives and wives, um, love your husbands. You know, to become skilled, it's easy to say, well, dear, I love you. And she said, oh, I love you, too. But the skill and the meat of that is where the husband has to sacrifice. Where he has to show that love. Where he has to come home and where the wife is all strung out and frustrated because the kids have been this and that and things are going haywire and she wants somebody to listen to her. And the husband has been working all day and he comes home and and he doesn't want to listen. He wants to go and do his thing instead of spending time with his wife and letting her get it out. So the real meat the real meat and skill of, of righteousness would be for a husband like Jesus Christ did. He laid down his life for all of us. He spent time with these unconverted disciples of his, you know. And they just they just were arguing, fighting. Right up to the moment that he was crucified, they were still bickering and fighting and arguing who's going to be the greatest. And yet Jesus Christ listened to them. He was patient with them. And he knew that eventually they would become converted. But by that example, we see that Jesus Christ was mature and he was very skilled. He was perfect in um, in the word of righteousness, of course. So we read about another area here, and that is... Um, you know, one of the most difficult scriptures. You know, we have sermonettes about difficult scriptures, right? You know, what, what do you feel would be one of the most difficult scriptures in the Bible to explain? Well, husbands, love your wives. That's one. 
Wives, submit to your husband. Maybe that be uh, another one. But I think the most difficult scripture uh, to date uh, could be what the ones that we find in Matthew 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. We've got to become skilled in this, brethren. This is really important. If we're not skilled in this, we're not going to be in God's family. It says, Matthew 18, verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. And what's the first response when we share that wisdom with our fellow brothers in Christ? The, the response I get, it doesn't work. I've been to him. And he didn't admit he was wrong. I was right, he was wrong. He didn't admit he was wrong. And ah, it doesn't work. You know, Jesus Christ says it works. So what we're doing is we, we don't have faith. We're not skilled. We're not trusting God to go to our brother when there's an upset or when there's a problem. And then if the other person doesn't respond, we don't give up. We need to pray about it and then go again. Or if you realize you did make a mistake and you go and apologize, well, I forgive him, but I'm not going to forget. You know, we have that attitude. And that attitude is, is, is not good either. Because really we haven't forgiven unless we can put it all behind us, you see. To be skilled like Jesus Christ was in our behalf. God has thrown all our sins in the deep blue sea. He's thrown them behind his back. He's forgiven us and forgotten. And God will help us as well to forgive. And believe it or not, to forget. It's just completely in the background, the recesses. We can overcome. We can overcome that, those hurt feelings. I mean... You probably and all of us at one time or another have had our toes stepped on, had uh, someone step on our heart, maybe just really ream-steamed and dry-cleaned us, and maybe uh, whatever really hurt you deeply. I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. It is possible to, to forgive and to put it behind you and to go forward and be skillful in fact, if there is a future time and it happens again, well, you're really so uh, professional about it. You're really on the cutting edge of having done this before and having finally good results. It's not a problem. You know what to do. Even the Apostle Paul says, if you are, if you suffer, you know, you should suffer yourself to be defrauded. No, you're not. You're going to judge angels. You know, it says in First uh, Corinthians, the sixth chapter, you're going to judge angels. Wow. What a bit of knowledge that is. And uh, so, you see, being skilled means, in the word of righteousness, means you have to be a living sacrifice. means you have to be willing to suffer like Christ suffered for the sake of others who may be immature. It means that you have to be forgiving. In fact, Matthew, the fifth chapter... The Sermon on the Mount, as we would call it, Matthew 5, verse 23 through 24, Christ said, If you know that your brother has ought against you, 
Leave your gift by the altar. You're going up to pray. You're going to up and offer up thanks to God. And, of course, we come before the very throne of God when we pray. So you're going up before the throne of God and you're praying. But Christ said, don't do that. If you know that your brother has ought against you, you lay the gift beside the altar and then you go and make it right with your brother. Be reconciled to your brother. That is a valuable principle. But how many people are skilled in that act of righteousness? You know, prayer is a act of righteousness. It's a good work. And when you pray for one another and you then you go to your brother, that is an act of righteousness. Don't give up on that. Christ Jesus, our Savior, our Lord and Master, the chief apostle, the shepherd of God's church, he says it works. And he will back it up. He will help you. It does work. And the other person uh, may not think it works, but in time, uh, you know, you'll see. But don't give up on that. But that's what it means when we say you must be skillful in the word of righteousness. Now, are you skillful in tithing? Of course. Many of you are tithing and you're blessed. You know it works. Are you skillful in um you know, setting up chairs and considering uh, the needs maybe for the wheelchair section. See, those are important areas too. You are skilled in a lot of different areas of righteousness. And you may be fasting for, for people. You may be praying for other people. You may be signing the uh, cards to send out. Those are all important. You see, so there are many areas, but you may be weak, or I may be weak, let's say, uh, in another area. And so we can bone up on these things. We can ask God to help us to see where we're lacking. And we can become skillful in those areas we are weak in. You see, brethren, Christianity is described by the Apostle Paul as a work of faith, a labor of love, and patience of hope. And that's what God is doing with all of us. So what's it mean? Matthew, the fifth chapter, to mourn. What's it mean to be meek? What's it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? So if we are practicing it, we're going to know it. We're going to become skillful. Um, is there a day that goes by that your heart doesn't really just break inside what you see going on in this world? Where you mourn and you cry out to God? Thy king, you know, God, your kingdom come. And uh, you go down the list there of the Beatitudes that Jesus Christ talked about. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. What's a peacemaker? And by asking those questions, it will help us then to think about doing and putting into practice what those words mean. Number three, the third one is, a good teacher cares for his students. A good teacher cares for his students. Here we read in 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, 2 Corinthians 8. Second Corinthians, the 8th chapter. This was asked at the, in the council. What, one of the things that, uh, that need to be, that we need to look for when we're looking for leaders and pillars and potential 
ministerial uh, trainees that we want to be involved in, in the ministry. And this applies to all of us because you're going to be a king and a priest. Now, that's higher than an apostle. You know, I mean, we're going for the, the big goal here. And so you might not necessarily think of yourself as being in the ministry, but in one sense, brethren, we're all serving and uh, we're all learning and growing, being prepared here. So in 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, notice this in verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care of for you into the heart of Titus. So you see, the care for God's people must come from God. And so a person wants to be used by God, whether, whether as a pillar or wherever in the church, you want God to use you the way you want God to, not the way you want to be used, but you want God to use you, pray for the earnest care for God's people. A good teacher cares for his students. And one day, if you're a young adult, you're going to have students in your family, hopefully, nice, healthy students, children that you can um, teach and to encourage. First um, Corinthians 12 says that we should care one for another. In Philippians, the t- second chapter, not only was Titus talked about here by the Apostle Paul, but also Timothy. Notice Philippians 2, verse 20. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. So it was brought out in the council that this is one aspect that we need to think about and that a person must really care for God's people. They must have a supernatural kind of a, a an extra measure, you see, already working in their heart that they care for God's people, that God has put that there, just like God has put that same love that you have for one another. That's number three. And then fourthly, and like I said, there are four principles. These are just four basic principles. There are many, many more. We can talk about kindness. We can talk about being approachable. We can talk about a lot of different other areas, but these are just four. Number four is you've got to pass the test to be a good teacher. There's a test you take. If you go to school to be a teacher, you've got to pass that test. Well, in the church, you've got to pass the test of trials and tribulation and temptations. We have to learn to to cast all our care on our Father in heaven, for he cares for us. He's going to see us through, that we're in the palm of God's hand. He's going to walk us through these trials and tests, and God will make a way of escape. But here we read in 2 Timothy, the third chapter, 2 Timothy 3, a truism that is so true. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Yes, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecutions. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And if you haven't suffered persecution or trial or testing, it's just a matter of time. It's got to happen. And you may wonder why. Why do we have to suffer persecution? Jesus Christ said that those of your own household 
will become our enemy. Mother against father, and we see that today. Brother against, you know, brother. I have two older brothers that are not in the church. Uh, they, they are successful. Uh, they are d- doing fine. But they just don't understand yet. Oh, I can't wait for their eyes to be open. That's going to be a big day. And I hope to be there. And that's what we look forward to when we come to the last great day. If they don't have their eyes open before then, you know. But, you know, these trials and these tests that come our way um, are humbling. We realize we're weak. We, we, we can't solve these issues that come upon us. And it, it keeps us on our toes. And we realize we've got to keep relying upon God. Why are trials and tests of our faith important to God? Because, you know, a, a teacher needs patience. And the Apostle James says, let patience have its perfect work. We really need patience. Reading from the booklet here, Your Ultimate Destiny, Dr. Mer- uh, Meredith writes, it says, The Apostle Paul predicted, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Therefore, true Christians are insured of constant trials and tests and persecution. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. Matthew 10, verse 34 to 36. And we're not to think strange that we fall into various trials and or fiery trials that will try us. No, we, we have to have those things in order to develop that golden character, in order to have that wisdom and understanding to be able to teach in God's kingdom. The remarkable trials, the tests, the tears, and perhaps even the agony of overcoming some physical suffering, Dr. Meredith writes, is our reward is our reward to be no greater than that of a multi-million, multiple millions of created beings in the angelic host, In other words, he's showing that we're going to have a a greater responsibility, even the the angels. Truly, the awesome purpose of human existence goes far beyond even what the righteous angels and archangels will experience. Why they go through, why do we go through these trials? Why are we tested again and again? God wants to see if we're willing to totally surrender to him. A great teacher will be totally surrendered to the Father and Jesus Christ. And the ultimate purpose, of course, is to be in God's kingdom as a very son of God. So that's exciting. We're learning to trust God. We're learning to understand these basics. Isaiah 25, verse 7 says, God will destroy the covering cast over the people and the veil spread over uh, the nations. So that later on, when Jesus Christ begins to talk about the law of God from Mount Zion uh, on the day of, uh, on the Feast of Tabernacles, all nations coming up, people are going to be ready to listen. And we'll be there to give sense and meaning and understanding to the laws of God. But it's going to come from Jesus Christ first, and we'll, 
we'll add to it. We'll be there to make it plain and clear and uh, to help those people coming out of a shell-shocked, unbelievable uh, mess that Satan had created. False knowledge will be unlearned. The wisdom of God will replace the foolishness of this world's educational system. We have been called to rule and to teach God's way of life. A good teacher must be preparing. Will you be able to remember? Do you know the scriptures and can you quote them? We're going to be born in the very family of God as sons of God. You and I are going to be transformed from flesh to immortality. Our aptitude, our abilities and powers will be multiplied exponentially. There will be no measure as to what IQ you will have because it will be so great it will be off the charts from a physical standpoint, all way above that of humans, made after the God kind because we're going to be born into the family of God and the mind that Jesus Christ had is to be in us. Let this mind be in you. And that very mind, the mind of the Father, the mind of the Son, will be in us as Spirit-begotten children of God will be infused with God's power and glory. God will make up for whatever we lack, and we'll be able to fulfill all responsibilities God gives us. The results of God's uh, plan and and what God is doing for his family will be far-reaching. And even now, we see in advance the results of of what you're going to be doing in the king, in the family of God, in the kingdom of God, ruling on this earth. We read about it when we see the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what you will have been accomplishing and doing and teaching and helping others. Brethren, you and I, all of us together, are preparing to teach. You have made many changes since the time that you were baptized. Many of you already have a lot of experience in this life of obeying God and practicing the righteousness of God's word, growing in grace, growing in kindness and love toward one another, forgiving one another, growing in more of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and the evidence of growth has begun. And we know what God has started, he will finish. Notice Philippians finally. Philippians, the first chapter, in verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ.